You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, there was no guitar center for the Beatles, okay? There was organ center, um, and organ center sold organs, and Vox uh, was one of the brands of organs they sold. And when the Beatles hit, the folks from Vox told Wayne Mitchell, you can start carrying our amplifiers, and I guess they had guitars too and all that. He goes, no fucking way. I'm not putting that in my organ store. They said, well, if you don't put the stuff in a store, we're going to take away the line and give it to somebody else. So we opened a guitar center down the street from Organ Center. And so, so, so Beatles are why I'm here. The Beatles are why GC exists. There's Beatles, are the, like Ludwig says, they ran the factory on three shifts for years trying to keep up the demand, right? They completely changed everything. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 2020. Once again, I'm Siobhan Cronin here with Benny Goodman and Corey Peza. I 2020'd myself out of my ring light working, so I'm tuning in from the darkness but this week very special we have gene jolly self-proclaimed old industry dog but very high up at guitar center uh qsc musicians musicians friend, friend. Yeah. yeah had a lot of great industry stories about working in merchandising the Wurlitzer, yeah, the, the other side, contrary to all the musicians we talked to you know telling us about what happens sort of behind the scenes on the retail side of things yeah, very unique perspective and a, and a great episode. So check it out. You think Guitar Center's over? Apparently it's not at all. Like, Tune in to find okay. out. Part one with Gene Jolly. So this week coming in from some part of Massachusetts with a totally scary hand. But who cares? Because he's a great dude and knows so much about this crazy horizon that is retail music. He is like an oracle. When I went to Nam and I first met this gentleman, he was the ring you had to kiss. Like if you saw all the booths, like all the people were lining up like for his autograph. Like Eddie Van Halen's over there. No one cares. And then there's Gene Jolly. Gene Jolly. How are you, man? Good. How are you, Ben? So you're looking at it. This is the best. This is the best I've been all day. Yeah, you get a great room. Thank you. Is that all you got a lot of great rooms, Ben. He's been told he has too many keyboards by several guests, but yeah. I thought you. I've seen your guitar collection. How do you have room for all the keyboards? Big house. That's why they're all crammed separate, in that room. Uh, a separate Stats. room. I'm not sure there's even enough room for all the guitars and keyboards. But <laughs> but I'll jump in by saying I, I'm super excited to talk to you because, you know, we often have a lot of musicians or people that are on the artist side. And I think it would be really cool to dive into some of your insight on the industry side and retail and, you know, kind of hear your journey a little bit. Um, so maybe if, if I can start off by asking for anyone that doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about your history? Um, you know, what some of your positions have been, what sort of work you did throughout your career? Sure. Um, I started in the music product industry as opposed to the music industry at large in March of 75 um, I was playing in a band a prog rock band and the drummer was working at E. Walter in Boston and uh, 
they fired uh, their warehouse manager because he was stealing. And a few weeks had gone by, and and they hadn't found anybody to replace him. And so uh, my drummer asked, "Hey, hey, Gene, you want to you want to do this gig at Wurlitzer's? Uh, you're very organized. You could be good at it, and uh, you can get discounts." So um, no, 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 I'm too busy. I was teaching guitar. I was uh, you know practicing seven days a week. We were rehearsing at night. Um, you know, so at that point, very serious. Wait, season. not eight days a week. You weren't practicing eight days a week. Ringo wouldn't it be okay with that, Gene. Okay, I'm. I stand corrected. So, so, anyways, <laughs> uh, so no, 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 no. Then finally, okay, I'll do it for a month. Um, and so that was that was. So I started there March third of seventy five, and two weeks later, I started dating uh, the woman who became my wife. Uh, seven months later, and we decided we want to have kids. And anyways, everything went very fast. And before you knew it, I was like, I was fine being a starving artist. I was not fine, my kids starving. So I just started taking my job seriously. And then that was my portal to the industry. Uh, but I ended up being at Wurlitzer's for 20 years. And I was a president for 12 of those years, um, the last 12. And uh, so it was, you know, I never made much money there. Small, small company, you know, family owned business and so forth. But I got a, a great education on the fundamentals of merchandising, operational stuff, and so forth. So you and, went from from the warehouse to president. Yeah, I was <laughs> warehouse for the first year, yeah. and, and again, my wife and I were just kind of like figuring it out. We're married, and then we're having kids and all that. It's like, and I just asked my wife, "Hey, you know, I think I could be a sales guy," and 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 he said, "Yeah, give me a shot." So, uh, and I was pretty good at it, and I liked it. Um, it's just things you just don't know until you just take the step in there. And, and I, my customers are all musicians. <laughs> so it's awesome. I'm getting to meet so many cool people, a lot of whom, you know, became friends. And, uh, uh, so that was the big, that was the beginning. And, uh, um, I, I stayed in Boston till, uh, 96 and, uh, needed to make more money. I had two kids in college and then uh, a third starting in the fall. And I was, you know, we were going to go bankrupt, but it didn't start making more money. My wife is working uh, as an IT person at Children's Hospital, cardiology department. She was making more money than I was. You know, it was uh, it was just stupid. <laughs> so my mother of three, you know, full time mom, you know, like gets this IT gig, and and like so. Anyways, it's uh, a retail can be a grind and trying to make money. But um, I uh, I went to work for Elliot Rubinson at Thoroughbred. You might have heard of Thoroughbred was a famous store back in the day until about 20 years ago when he sold out to uh, Sam Ash. And Elliot was, okay. Elliot and I were very close in age and it was just like brother from another mother, just had an absolute blast working for him for a couple of years. Um, and then I got an interesting uh, path uh, to go into the manufacturing. I went to work in general manager for Tascam uh, US. And uh, that was back in the day when Tascam was, uh, was making the transition from reel to reel tape type machines to, to digital and uh, so it's kind of a kind of a rough patch for them and it was uh, you know Japanese wanted some help uh, an interesting thing is I had no experience in manufacturing uh, and when I asked you know when they were interviewing me I go why do you want a, a retailer like why aren't you getting a manufacturing person they said well when you had your I had a, 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 an interview uh, back then it was a video streaming way before zoom but you had, you had to go to like the FedEx or Kinko's is what it was back then right sit in a conference room they said, you know, you articulated the strategic problem better than anybody else, and and you had ideas on how to uh, deal with it, and so forth. So that that's how I got the gig, 
Um, but it was it was difficult because I didn't have the fundamentals of product development process. Uh, uh, working with a Japanese company had its own communication challenges. But I learned a lot. Wonderful people. I was there about five years. Uh, and then uh, really my, my career was made uh, when uh, David Angris from Guitar Center invited me to join uh, as VP of high-tech merchandising. So um, that was my entry there. And I, I uh, was promoted a few times, uh, eventually ended up at Musician's Friend, uh, running mer- uh, merchandising there. Uh, then uh, after GC went private, um, uh, about a year later, Greg Trojan uh, came in uh, as president, eventually CEO, and then he asked me to come back to Southern Cal. I had to, I had to go to Oregon to, uh, <clears throat> to do the Musician's Friend gig for a few years and then Greg invited me back to run stores at Guitar Center. So I uh, went from running five, uh, seven stores in Boston with you know 150 employees to uh, 200, 214 stores when I started running stores and about 7,000 employees. So that was a little bit wow. different scale. <laughs> scale. Wow. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, working at GC. It was, it was the, it, I felt like I was home because it was the same culture, the same thing. And just all my, all my employees were musicians. <laughs> Obviously, my customers and so forth there. So, and just operating at a different scale, though, and that that was a super learning curve. Figuring out uh, how to do that, how to coordinate all the things that needed to be executed in, in a store while keeping the fucking thieves uh, from <laughs> robbing you blind. You know, uh, was, sure. if I ever kill anybody, it's going to be a thief because it just caused so much pain and hardship in my life. Uh, and then uh, I was with GC till the end of uh, 2014. Um, and almost retired in 2015, but, um, but Joe Pham, CEO of QSC invited me to come on board. Joe, um, so like an Ozzy Osbourne style retirement. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I mean? But, but Sharon just keeps telling you, like an QSC, but, but you're Sharon's your mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Joe, uh, I'll tell you the QSC story in more detail later, but Joe boy genius, um, uh, you know, Joe, Joe, uh, well, I'll tell the story later. Okay, it's too long. Yeah. Um, All right. Yeah. <laughs> we, we got time. <laughs> well, we have two hours, right? So yeah. we're definitely, there's, we're going to go deep on some other things. But uh, QSC, you know, I think has a great reputation. All you folks, everything you hear about QSC is absolutely true. What was cool is going inside and seeing from the, you know, from the, from the bottom up, from the, from the founders who are still the owners of the company 50 plus years later. Um, and these really, really cool guys, and they have an unbelievable founder story. The culture they built, uh, them hiring Joe, who's got a PhD in molecular engineering and has spent six years at McKinsey, working 80 hour weeks, traveling all over the world, doing all these super high advanced, uh, high pollutant engagements. And they invite him to come in and, and run R&D. Uh, and, and, uh, and the K-Series was, was developed under Joe's watch. I, I was about to say, mm-hmm. you, I got I to gotta talk about this because I'm a DJ. And right. I remember going to NAM just at a time before the K-Series dropped by QSC. And I consider them basically the hallmark, the benchmark for which every other speaker has now copied. Because at the time, you could only get like pretty much normal speakers, a thousand watt RMS speakers, which is pretty freaking loud, okay? And But they were heavy, but you could get them. Gene was like, all right, man, you should hold off for a little bit. I'm like, well, dude, I need to buy new speakers. He's like, hold off. I'm working on this thing. <laughs> what do you mean? 2,000 watts RMS? 
which is like, you know, it really means that. Like, it, it means actually 2001. He's like, yeah. And it weighs like 45 pounds. Shut the fuck up, man. That is a lie. And I swear to God, he sent me one of the first pairs of the K12.2s. And I have used those for every single gig. And you don't even need two of them. You could just use one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're Woo. literally the best speaker. They, and next thing you know, every company is like 2,000 watts, 45 pounds. What the fuck? And, the, and it's changed the whole industry. And they put it out for a ridiculously cheap price where you could get Yamahas that were more expensive, that weighed more, and were half mm-hmm. the wattage. And, and by half the wattage, I mean really not as loud. It's insane. So, Gene, thank you for making me sound better at all the crazy places that would never invite me unless I was the DJ. Zero credit. Uh, QSC has an amazing engineering team. And also, you know, uh, you know, people like John Graves, who spent 30 years on the road mixing for speaking of, uh, you know, uh, I mean, Eddie Money and a whole bunch, of, whole bunch of other famous folks there with these ears. When it comes time to tune the cabinets and make sure that the, the final audio, uh, you know, the, the, the sonic palette is superior to anything that's out there. That is an art form. That is beyond science. That is the musical art form. So they have a, they have a cr- tremendous uh, team of engineers, supply chain people, uh, testers, listeners, and so forth there. And that's why it comes out the way it does. It's just a remarkable operation. That's amazing. Well, let me ask you. So, this is a fascinating story. Um, what what sort of academic background, if any, did you have? Because I, I I love that you kind of started at the baseline level of just being involved peripherally in sort of music merchandising and retail, and you know climbed your way up through you know immense levels of being at the top. So, did you have any sort of background academically, you know, in this sort of thing, or you know, how did you learn as you went to be able to handle the sort of things that you had to do at the level you were working at? Yeah, so uh, I always felt like I was just one step ahead of my creditors. You know, it, it's like you know, like I, I get, I, I need to keep moving forward, getting my knowledge. And so I started going to school at night. A few years after I started World Series, I went to Bunker Hill Community College. I used to do two two courses a semester. Learned all the accounting stuff, the finance stuff. Matriculated over to Suffolk University and eventually over to, to Bentley. Got my degree at Bentley in 1994. Uh, that's almost 20 years after I started at World Series. So I, I was I was determined to get my degree to not be a musician ever. <laughs> I was determined to be a, to, to get my degree before my eldest daughter got her degree. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. That's incredible. I mean, that's incredible. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like there's some stuff you just can't wing it. You know, Siobhan, mm-hmm. you you gotta you gotta know how to read financial statements. You know, you gotta understand cash flow. Oh no, this this girl is like a full pedigree. Like, how what do you have like a master's degree, Siobhan? Yeah, well, I will. Yeah, I mean, I completely oh, yeah, agree. Yeah. So I, no, but I, but I got my degree in music and I also studied economics. But I remember having teachers tell me like, oh, you should take an accounting class and all this stuff. So I did. I, I took a lot of that. And I, I can only imagine it would be really hard. Not that I use it a lot at this point, but I Siobhan think would be the best ever, double agent forever. <laughs> we just send you to another country. They'd be like, oh, this stupid blonde. And you're like, meanwhile, you're like, I see numbers. No, but at the same time, you do have to pair it with the experience because there also is a lot of stuff. If you just go to school, I mean, there's some things that you can't learn until you probably do it. Is, am I correct in saying that? Yeah. And that and so that was cool because as I was learning the stuff, I was applying it. Okay, I was literally learn at night, apply the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I had, you know, I had mostly good bosses who could help me, uh, you know, uh, uh, understand, go into more detail. You know, and as I got to bigger companies, I also had chief financial officers and people like that. So 
uh, once you get, but, you, but Siobhan, you said the right thing though. You, you got to get the basics yourself and then you go out there, you apply it and, and others will, will help as long as you go out there and ask for it, you get the resources around you. So when you're a small company, not, you're not so much resource rich, you're figuring everything out yourself. But as you get to bigger companies, uh, it becomes a much more resource rich environment. So, so people, you know, when I, when I was at uh, Guitar Center, um, I, I used to travel to the stores and people would complain about the lack of inventory. And I just used to laugh at them going, you have no idea. Okay. You, you have so much inventory here. Uh, and, you know, and the salesman's perspective is no matter what you have, there's things you don't have. Right. Um, but if you've lived in a scarcity environment where um, between financial issues, between just the ability to execute reorders and so on and so forth there, um, GC is a juggernaut and has been for years. I mean, they, it's unbelievable how well they run those, uh, run those stores with all the uh, complexity of, of being a retailer, especially in this day and age with all the supply chain bullshit you're hearing about. So, um, uh, but I learned, you know, I learned how to do all that stuff at Worlds is uh, in, a, in a much more resource constrained environment. And by the time I get the GC, I had this much more complex job, but I had knowledge and I also had a lot of people around me, that, you know, uh, really good managers throughout the organization and different levels and different re- responsibilities. So. Well, we've heard this with a lot of our guests where people like when you don't have a budget and you are able to make things happen with like almost no budget or next to no budget is when, because there's a lot of people like, you know, who have you learn, the yeah. opportunity of having money so they can waste money. They're like, oh, I'm just going to throw money at this. Whereas if like you're a scrappy dude, you know, working at EU Wurlitzer, like I, I, I bought my first Paul Reed Smith in Wista at EU Wurlitzer from Jay Tulio, you know. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Dude, listen, he's had the same haircut since 1985 when Paul came in. Like, oh my God. Hey, hey, listen, I went to Nam and uh, uh, Ben, this is the best one. I'm telling you, this this, this is above a TED top. I, I swear to God, I swear, I've seen a lot of them. Like, yeah. Uh, he sold me my first, actually, like, I think three PRSs out of that store. So, like, first off, thank you because. A lot of the people that I grew up loving, a guy like Steve Morrill, who I still go to my guitar stuff, you, yep. you know, he's like, Back in the day, gee jolly. And that's the thing. Like, I, I've heard your name so many times. It's kind of like Sully from Godsmack. Like, everyone knows Sully. There's a Sully in Dorchester. Gene Jolly. They seem to know you everywhere around here. Sully! <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm that so- wasn't a question. That was a rant. I'm sorry. Good, good. It, it, it happens regularly on the show. It was a soliloquy. <laughs> soliloquy. <laughs> It's always oh, there wine it time. Yeah, there, there we go. go. Out yes, of the bottle, just, just like, like Nuno. Nuno. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Set a precedent on this show. I was, I was very impressed with the, uh, the Nuno episode. How uh, the bottles start flowing. Like, oh, we're not doing talking cups, man. We're just going straight. <laughs> we were uh, impressed, too. We, we weren't sure that that... Well, no one knew that was going to happen other than... I don't even think Nuno knew that was going to happen. No, it was well, all unexpected. He has to get the bottle. Of course he didn't know. <laughs> He didn't, yeah, he didn't it was know a it was going to be such a, yeah, it was going to be such a, uh, we're such a fun crowd, I guess. What I'd like to dive into is out of all the positions you've held, um, which one do you felt like you had the most influence in terms of like changing culture or, or business rhythms and anything like that? Well, the, uh, when I joined GC, uh, it was a publicly traded company on the stock exchange. I had a merchandising job, uh, high tech stuff there. I did that for a few years. Then I went up to uh, Musician's Friend for three, three years and did merchandising, all the merchandising, not just that. When I came back down to the stores, Bain Capital had bought 
um, Guitar Center, October 07. There's a lot of been a lot of criticism over the years about they made it too corporate, blah blah blah, so on and so forth. The reality is um, the Bain folks were uh, mostly uh, very earnest, very sharp, very well educated. Um, and the problem with the Bain deal had nothing to do with Bain being too corporate. Um, these are just super hardworking people, very qualified, very collaborative. The problem was that they paid 22 times earnings um, a year before the global financial crisis. That's the entire problem. Okay, The numbers were never going to work once you had a big re industry reset. Industry sales went down 20%. Right? And so it took years for the industry to claw itself back to that level. Well, meantime, Bain's having to make interest payments on debt that's based on a bunch of assumptions that get blown out the window uh, in the fall of 2008 when, when the GFC hit, right? So that was the whole problem with the Bain deal. Uh, Bain had the right ideas on what to do at Guitar Center. They were investing heavily on, uh, on, on uh, you know, on putting in IT infrastructure, you know, freshening up the stores, so on and so forth. And it was always, there was always a plan to stop opening stores for three years and then start resume opening stores after a bunch of other investment been made. Uh, and in that three year period, um, and we, I, I, I ran stores for most of that period, we, uh, we spent a lot of time designing a store of the future. So the store of the future is going to have a lot more merchandise out in the store instead of back in the warehouse. So it's a lot mm -hmm. easier for a salesperson to get to it rather than running back in the warehouse. It's going to have lesson rooms. Um, it's going to have repair stations in every store. Uh, GC had never done lesson rooms. And, and by the way, this came from the top. This was not my thing. This was pushed by our CEO, Greg Trogan. And, uh, but I had to figure out how to do it, execute it. And, uh, you know, we, uh, worked with the veteran, uh, st store guys, my regional managers, people like Brian Thor, Jay Tynes. And, uh, I think we nailed uh, a pretty good vision of what that store was going to look like. We started opening them in, in Lexington, Kentucky in January of 2011. Uh, Sarasota, Florida, the next month, and uh, just went on. And you go to GC stores now; they all have they all have lessons. Um, they all mm -hmm. have uh, what they call GC garage, or at least that's what they called it when I was there. Um, for guitar repair, uh, experimented with rehearsal space that didn't work out. Um, it was a it was a good try. It worked out okay in some locations, but uh, the, the the business is so opposite of everything else because it's a nighttime business. Really, it was and, and we had the separate entrance, all that stuff there, but it just just didn't it just didn't flow uh with the stores but the but the services businesses you know and then, then we started then we started doing saturday morning uh classes you know we started doing garage band get people into recording start doing ukulele lessons so on and so forth so it was all of this kind of a three-ring circus thing it just wasn't gear because remember during this time the, the web is starting to happen a big time the, the web started going off the rails in the late 90s uh, i can mm -hmm. tell you being a musician's friend uh, when I joined MF in 2005, their uh, their econ growth was far significant more than uh, catalog, and so and then in 08, Amazon decided to get into the category big time. So I start running stores in 08. So I've got to compete with Amazon, and we have the global financial crisis. So GC had never had a, GC had never had a down month until the month that Lehman went bankrupt and the shit hit the mm -hmm. and and then had significant double digit decrease everybody in the industry was just like this you know this uh crazy crazy time can you touch briefly just on um the relationship between guitar center and musician's friend yeah gc mf was founded in the early 70s by uh, rob eastman and built a very successful business and for a variety of reasons decided to sell uh and uh 
GC competed against Sam Ash and Mars Music at the time for it, and GC uh, uh, won out. And so they bought MF and for years kept it as a completely separate operation up in Oregon. And uh, very successful business. And uh, and so they, they own now. Eventually, GC uh, shut down, uh, it was a 2011 shutdown, the Medford campus, and brought a bunch of people from Medford down to Southern California and integrated uh, the sun. Because there was some duplication uh, of effort with uh, merchandising and so forth there. So today, the Musicians Friend brand continues to live. Uh, and that, merch, that, that, uh, that group that does e commerce does all the brands of e commerce. GC.com is itself a big e commerce site. Uh, you have musicians brand. You have some some other specialty sites. So, but the origin of it, independent company founded in the early seventies. GC bought it out in nineteen ninety nine. Eventually, uh, in, integrated it into uh, the Westlake Village operation. Let me jump in and just ask a question about some of the things you said for for the lay people here. Um, can you talk a little what bit about they? what merch <laughs> or the listeners what what merchandising the gen means? Pop. <laughs> no, but I, I'd like for you to to talk a little bit about what you mean by merchandising, what that job entails, because um, that seems yeah. like a massive category of what it's somebody very, is does. Is that like planograms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Planograms are a subset of it, right? But but merchandising is basically the selection and acquisition and presentation of merchandise. That's it. So it, it Wait, it, subset? Is that a Rush song? <laughs> Everything falls like anywhere. Like, what what are we going to carry? How much are we going to sell it for? And how are we going to present it to the customer? Right. So uh, on on a, on, a, on an e-commerce site, uh, you deal with it every day. You know, you have your search box, you have your browse, you have all your panels there. You have all these different sections of merchandise and so forth. There, there's a tremendous amount of thought that goes into that, and there's a lot of science because you can see click, click patterns and so forth. You get heat maps and pages, and and, the, and all the sophisticated e-commerce uh, firms use uh, testing to find out, you know, changing colors and changing sizing and so on and so forth. How it affects the end user experience. Presentation of the store, obviously, is where I put the merchandise and how we group. All right, so can we can give you a classic uh, merchandising thing. Listen, we're going to tie two things together, okay? So your merchandising question, and then you know things that I felt that made a difference, okay? So this period uh, when we're rolling out new stores, GC had always been in the used business, um, but had done it in a way that most stores did it. You would take in a guitar, you would throw it up on the wall with all the other guitars put a price on it and, and, and so on and so forth, okay? Um, and it was a, a small part of the business, but a steady business. Um, what, what we experimented with was putting all the used gear in one section, okay? So now used becomes its own department. And uh, honestly, I, I resisted that, okay? The CEO wanted to do that. He goes, let's try it as its own department. Like, Greg, it doesn't make any sense. You know, you've you got this big guitar wall. We'll put it. So we went back and he goes, humor me. Yes, sir. I will humor you. So we did it. We tried it, and uh, visited. We did, we did two stores. And visited. Like I noticed something. People, when people come in to look at the used thing, they would they would start asking people. I've got a couple of guitars in the basement at home. So you guys will buy those guitars. It wasn't so much having a used department wasn't so much about selling used gear. It was about acquiring used gear. And the biggest, the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, roadblock to selling more used gear. Uh, and a music store is getting more used here. So putting the used department solved the big problem. We want more used here. How do we create awareness that we actually buy this? And it's a huge advantage GC has, almost 300 stores. They have 300 collection depots for used gear. Right? People walk in, show up with a car, bring in their stuff, we shoot them a price, either cut them a check or give them a credit, and done. We know how much you use here. 
and they can sell it online. You know, we one thing I did when we were there is, is we started building out the whole omni-channel thing. The omni-channel thing meant taking the stores, the contact center, people on the phones, and also on chat and all that, and e-commerce, and, and having them kind of function as one company, right? So the customer can go, I can buy online, I can return to store, like, you know, whatever way I want to do it, you know, and this is common now in retail. But GC was, was ahead of the curve here in, in, in 08, 09, 2010, um, and actually won uh, an award a retail award for Omnichannel, beating out Walmart and everybody else back about 12 years ago. So, um, and uh, so, you know, what was the question? I think we were we kind of tied a bunch of things together, but I was just asking about merchandising because, you know, it's a... To... I'm kidding. You were asking about oh. merchandising. So, so merchandising is different uh, depending on whether you're, you're talking about uh, uh, .com. A catalog, obviously, there's uh, not a lot of those left, but still, you have X, X number of pages, you have this big assortment, you have this many pages, you're gonna decide what's gonna go in, what the pricing, what the placement and so forth there. Uh, but today it's really, it's 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 uh, e-commerce and it's retail and uh, merchandising is the, you know, what are you gonna buy, what are you gonna price it for, how are you gonna present the customer? Those are the, those are the major questions you're trying to solve. Sure, so you, so you mentioned how the CEO proposed this idea of doing the used gear area. Was there an example of an idea that you had or um, a proposition that you made that became like a staple or something that like was integrated into the business in the long run? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay if you don't have a specific example. I'm sure it's, you know, the, the, cor- the corporate stuff sounds so foreign to me being a musician. Now I'm, I'm like so far removed from what it must feel like to be in a room with other people strategizing about where to put stuff or how to catalog something. So it's just fascinating to hear what goes on. Yeah, I, I think with GC, it's almost like in a really good band, you don't really start defining who wrote what. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there's all of this give and take. Like, you know, a song here, like, did I write that part or did Billy write it? Like, I don't really give a shit, you know? I think Billy did it, but I wrote the song and I gave him what I was looking for, but then he came up with something even better. Like, who wrote what? You know, it's this collaborative thing. So at GC, I'm working with all these industry veterans, okay? GC was a bunch of stores in California for a long time. Then in the late 80s, they opened a couple stores in Chicago and a couple in Texas, and that was their big thing. You know, can we move out of California? Can we do this? And it was a rough time. They had a rough few years trying to figure out how to not get robbed blind and, and, and how to replenish from far away from the home office. Um, and so, uh, so you know, they, 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 eventually, they eventually figured out um, how to do that. And, uh, and so you had all these people who they hired from way back then who were still with the company when I started running stores. I've got these regional VPs and district managers who are the company, you know, 10 is like a junior, right? 15, 20 plus years. So we're strategizing, brainstorming about how to do so. I had this fucking brain trust who knows so much about the industry. And a lot of them have moved all around the country and done different stores, you know? And uh, I mean, just a lot of them, really high quality people. Um, so uh, so anyways, how many things did I come up with? And they come up like, I don't know. I mean, because it was just this like constant discussion about how to do things better what to add so, so well one thing i've been really wondering for <clears throat> a long time is what do you think of the before covid and after covid as far as retail channels now because i know for that fenders doing better direct to consumer than they've ever been I'll, I'll just give you a personal example i walked into guitar center in las vegas and it seemed completely desolate but then i went down to florida 
and it was like completely packed and I'm like are they going out of business or are they doing well like and now I order everything to my door so like I don't even leave my house I'm scared of the outside world it's every time the wind comes I think it's over like what's going on well um, GC has done so well since COVID that they're uh, filing to become a publicly traded company okay so they've been private for 14 years and they have done so as you know some things have become very hot because of COVID. Pelotons became really hot because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, photography became really hot. It's a stay-at-home thing, right? Um, playing guitar and recording became really hot. Um, and GC has had an explosion of growth uh, in both, in specifically guitars and recording. Um, I have a lot of friends who still work there, and uh, it's no secret. We talk manufacturers and so forth. So, um, and this has been, you know, all the, all the music firms out there, retailers have, have, uh, have benefited from it. So, yeah, COVID was a taketh away from from uh, travel and uh, restaurants and all that, and then shifted a lot of that spend over to, to goods and things I, can, things I can do at all. And so the music uh, products industry was a big beneficiary from that. Yeah. You, you brought up a point that reminded me of another question I had. You talked about GC um, going uh, public, then becoming private again, correct? And now considering going public again. Can you talk a little bit about what that means for people that might not understand that and, you know, how companies make that sort of decision? Yeah. So basically, all right. Yeah. Because we're using Target here. Okay. Going public it means that um, you are traded on a, a stock exchange. Originally, GC was on the NASDAQ. Um, before that, it was privately, privately held. Okay? Uh, it was founded by a guy by the name of Wayne Mitchell. Over the years, Wayne did a employee stock ownership program. Ray Sherry became the majority holder. There were some other stockholders, Marty Albertson and Larry Thomas and a few other folks who were key to building the business. And uh, in 1996, it was time to cash out and uh, become, go public. And the ni- mid-90s were a booming era. Bill, Bill Clinton, economic boom. And... Uh, GC uh, went public, gave them the funds to do a national expansion uh, of stores, because at the time, I think they were 20 stores, uh, I think one shy of 300 now. And uh, so the owners went from, you know, a, a small number of people, founders and people who worked for the founders, and went to publicly traded. So now it's anybody who wants to buy the stock. And then GC also did things to do... Uh, to do, uh, you know, to give uh, employees shares or let them buy shares at a favorable price, create some buy-in, create some sense of uh, owning a piece of the of the rock, and uh, and then when GC decided to go private in uh, 07, Marty Albertson was the CEO at the time. The idea was, you know, the, the bad side of Wall Street is Wall Street wants a was it wants a great quarter every quarter, and sometimes you want to make investments that just you're not going to have a good quarter or, or even a good year. You you make investments for the long term. So Marty felt that you know after after a decade on the uh, public markets, he goes, Let, let's go private. Um, let's have let's uh, let's uh, get it off the stock exchange and let us make the investments we want to do. So in this case, the private was a, a private equity company. In this case, Bain Capital, and um, they uh, they uh, were the, uh, the sole owner uh, until 2014. Uh, and then they worked a deal with Aries Capital, who was the senior debt holder. Um, uh, Aries began the, the owner of Guitar Center. So it's Aries now who's, uh, who's putting the company back on the market. So uh, there's different reasons why people go public, and there's different reasons why they go private. 
Uh, but the, the reasons that GC did it are what I just told you. I'm, with, with mm-hmm. companies, they've owned the company long enough now. They're a company that has a diverse portfolio. They don't. They never hold on to anything forever. So they've they've held it onto it for seven years, and it, it was probably always the plan to hold it for seven to ten years, and then and then put it back onto the public market. So um, that's just kind of portfolio management uh, at the at the big financial firms and so forth. So uh, um, I really. Uh, I only worked for them for a brief period of time, but uh, also super smart um, people. Uh, you know, check out their track record; and they're they're uh, well respected. They're they're more known for um, uh, investments in debt. Okay, they're more lenders, uh, companies for debt, but uh, they they have done some uh, equity stuff. And uh, they, you know, GC owners for the last seven years, I think they did a pretty damn good job um, because you know, coming out of the global financial crisis. Um, it was it was a long road to get back to, uh, to the kind of profitability we needed to to deal with the the debt that was in place when Bain took uh, took over. So. That's such a good song, though. I love the long road. There's such it's such sweet harmony. I don't understand. I, I'm I'm not really sure what you're trying to say. Do you not like Don Henley? Uh, I love Don Henley. Yeah. <laughs> the more the ben most important thing is, I mean, and this is how we know if we're really friends. But Joe Walsh. What about Joe Walsh? How do you feel about him? James Gang. Well, okay, so then then that's an obvious yes, because my feeling is even, no matter what you think about the country talk that goes on in the Eagles, you you have to appreciate the pajama pant wearing Joe Walsh because he's just the greatest. Because life's been good to him. Pretty awesome. So far. <laughs> yeah. So far. I feel like Dave Mustaine paraphrased that and, I, and like he doesn't get the credit. That he deserves, Joe Walsh, James Gang. <laughs> well, let me ask you this: Do you feel like the the trend is going towards being mostly e-commerce and people buying things online, or do you think there's always going to be a place for the brick and mortar, like you know, having buildings where people go and play guitars and and shop Touch in stuff. person? Yeah, I'm so biased because I come from brick and mortar retail, um, so you're not going to get you know just a clinical answer from me. Um, uh, I love e-commerce. Uh, you know, I, I'm just a magical Amazon thing where I have to buy Rimfresh. So I, I'm not a good sleeper, right? I, I get fall asleep really well, but I wake up at two in the morning with my mind racing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought when I retired, that would change. Nope. That didn't change <laughs> at all. Okay. So Rimfresh is this timed melatonin thing and it works. And I, if I do, I do five milligram Rimfresh, you know, before I go to bed, I will stay asleep. Okay. Great. So it, it's hard to buy. So, Thank you, Amazon. It's easy to buy. It's right there. One minute transaction shows up in my mailbox. This time, 24 hours later. I love e-commerce, okay? And uh, we all love our Amazon. We love e-commerce in general because all the tremendous assortment. You know, you know, Benny now to buy a guitar online. All the images from all the different angles, close-ups in the back of the headstock. You know, the, the experience now is great. The, the what a music store gives you um, is two things. It's now, all right? There's like, the e-commerce delivery is getting better, but it's not now. It never will be now, okay? So it's now. And the second thing is discovery, okay? And whether that's, I'm not playing yet, but I think I want to play, but I want to pick up one of those guitars and I want to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. And, you know, in the store, there's very often people who not only know the stuff, but they're enthusiastic about it. So you get you just have this thing. And by the way, you might meet somebody else on the floor who's, you know, who's, hey, you know, I, I saw you checking that, you know, conversations happen and so forth. 
But the discovery is, I didn't know there was all this stuff, you know, and what's this and what's this? And just, you just see lights go on and you see people walk out in a different state if they're, if they're wired to become a musician, right? For a lot of people, music stores help, but not for musicians. Musicians, like, this is, this is like, you know, this is our tribe and this is, this is our place. So um, I believe that there will always be a place for, for bricks and mortar music stores. And it's just a matter of how they're, how well they're managed, you know, you got you gotta, you gotta have the assortment and uh, pricing is not an issue. It, uh, early on, GC, we we started matching prices against anybody in the internet. So, you know, I'm like, can't tell somebody, hey, go ahead, save fifty bucks elsewhere. It's like we're gonna die, and, and we had instant buy-in at the top. Like, yeah, we gotta, we can't, can't let that happen. So, so as long as you, as long as you're price competitive, I've got discovery and I get now. So, and those are those, those can't be beat. Yeah. Can't be what beat. kind of um conversations did you know the the leadership and the management and at every level have as the online realm was becoming more and more prominent like was there fear or like all right we got to hop on this type of attitude and how can we make those two things kind of shake hands it was never fair because gc so early that's why gc probably overpaid for mf in 1999 it's like because they, they knew it was a specialized go-to-market approach and rather than spend years trying to figure it out they just bought you know best of breed and uh and all the management that came with it and they kept it its own operation so so gc knew they had they had the the, the weaponry and the commanders uh and when when it came time to do gc.com that was the team that built gc.com and then it became let's integrate the stores with ecom and, and context and let's do the omni challenge it was no fair it was it was actually more the opposite it was more uh a lot of urgency, a lot of urgency, opportunity. Let's let's do this in the right order and let's execute it properly, plan it properly. So yeah, no that's fear. great. There's because there's a lot of uh, I think industries that that had the opposite uh, reaction and they're yeah. not around anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, I'll sleep yourself or someone else is going to do it. You know, so uh, good rule of thumb. What do you think about technology? Um, okay. Cause I, I, cause we live, I lived in a very, I'm, I'm known as a Xennial and you, and you know, this time, like, cause I was born and there was rotary phones still and there weren't and Apple two C's were like a thing. And then like the internet came and then you had CDs and it was like the analog to digital conversion. Like you understand that, but now like, so back in the day you had to spend $1,500 a day to go to Longview farm studios to get that sound, go through an Eve console, all this sort of stuff. Now you can go into a guitar center and you can literally buy, you know, your mono block cha- uh, channel from an SSL console, get all this stuff. There's no excuse for a painter to blame his paints anymore. Where do you see that affecting the music industry? Because now this, I feel like the standard is perfect as opposed to back in the day, you could be Bob Dylan and be like, here's a song. Don't you think it's cool? Well, let's get him in a studio. It's a tough one because I... You know, obviously, we're all, we're all in the same boat. You probably get way more people sent, sending you stuff to listen to than you have time to listen to, right? And it's just like, how much stuff can you actually process, you know, and and, and whatever. So I, I, I read something uh, months ago, so I'm going to completely butcher the stats. But there was an insane amount of tracks on Apple Music and Spotify that had never received more than two plays, you know, zeros, ones, and twos, which means the person who posted it and their mother wasn't to it, and like nobody else, right? So there's just like a crazy <laughs> amount of music out there, 
And and some of it, some of it's not so great, but a lot of it's pretty good, and nobody's listening to it. Um, and so, you know, when the musicians start numbering the audience, um, and obviously that's not the case, but but definitely the ratios have changed pretty dramatically. And Benny, this is it's all the result of um, we got the technology. You don't you don't have the fifteen hundred dollar a day barrier, uh, Longview Farms. You know, it's it's uh, it's really more gumption. You know, I'm going to buy the interface. I'm going to get the Mac. I'm going to buy the interface. I'm going to get the studio monitor, some headphones. I already got the instruments, you know, and I'm now I'm going to I'm now going to do the learning curve, right? Not that I get some friends that are into it. There's a bunch of YouTube videos and so on and so forth. So you know, uh, the I think um, it's harder than ever to break through, but Billie Eilish did it, you know, and Adele did it, and you know, the, people are doing it, you know. Um, when, when my when my niece told me at age 12 that she wanted to be a professional musician, I said, well, you know, you just got to understand the odds. And she just looked at me and she goes, yeah, but some, some people do it. I go, yeah, you're right. You're right. Some people do it. That's absolutely the case. So if you want to, you know, Nuno's story, where he's sleeping on the fucking road case all night in the goddamn rehearsal studio with rats running around, waking him up and all that. And do you know what that means, Gene? What? When he couldn't hear anybody, did you, did you know what that means? I, I meant that. He wanted it more, right? Yeah. And so, and he also had to be a phenomenal talent, so that might have helped. But, um, but yeah, it's just like uh, some people are going to break through, but just the amount of people you got to get past to do it. Uh, I, I hear complaints that there's no good new music. Not true at all. There's like I, my friend uh, Clint Ward uh, has a Facebook page. I forget the name of it, so I apologize for that. But uh, he. Post almost every day. Sometimes multiple times a day. Just goes and, and he's on this mission to prove that all the there's no good new music. That's complete bullshit. There's, there's tons of great new music. Some astonishing stuff. Incredible. Well, one of our guests, John Garabedian from the Open House Party. I'm sure you've heard him. Um, you know, he he came up with a pretty interesting stat that said that people past the age of 20, that that's when you're most people are done internalizing. So like, if you listen to the Eagles and Queen and Aerosmith, like that's what you listen to for fucking ever, and you don't let anybody into your heart really after that. So it's like when you hear Greta Van Fleet, and it's like. This sounds like Zeppelin. We're all curmudgeonly and like, why would you be imitating that? But the thing (laughs) is, there are, I remember the first band that I I had to eat my words was the band Muse because my heart stopped after 2000 when Dimebag, uh, you know, well, with that, after Pantera, I didn't know about Muse and someone gave me this CD. I'm like, why would I want to listen to a new band? There's no good new music. You know, you say that. And I remember going and listening to this record and going, "I, I, I'm so close-minded and I'm a vapid human being and I need to give this Matt Bellamy a little bit more respect. And that's when I realized I just stopped caring. That's what happened is that your brain, I think, stops caring. That's why all I listen to is Pearl Jam and Nirvana. So that's a great point. So the, the question is, can we change our brains? Okay. Because I'm you. Okay. At the age of 20. I hope so, man. At the age of 21, I went to work at Rolls's. I was married seven months later, starting a family. You know, and just in a completely different mode. After up until then, for three years, I was in a prog rock band, and uh, I was spending an insane amount of time at a record player playing at half speed, so I could figure out what Steve Howe was doing, an octave below what Steve Howe, it, just like just crazy shit. And uh, so, if you look did at did he my, look dead back then too? Like, did he look like the Crypt Keeper? Uh, to, let him finish his story. Ben. If you look at, if you look at the music that's deeply in my soul, it's 65 to 75, right? I started playing, I started playing guitar because of the Beatles. So I got my first guitar December 64. It's just listen to what 
the vast majority of what's deeply in my soul, you know, and it's that. And so, uh, so it's what you just said. So I think that's your natural inclination that becomes your, your musical wiring, but doesn't mean you can't push yourself beyond that. And so I choose to push myself beyond that. And I do listen to a lot more stuff than, than I would, you know, I I don't want to be the curmudgeonly guy. I don't want to be going around saying, you know, that there's no good music because that's bullshit. It's not fucking true. You know, there's an amazing amount of great stuff in there. The only challenge I have is just so much the, 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 the number, you know, in the equation, the number of releases is just overwhelming. And so it's, how do you get, so you, you, you figure out curation is one way to do it. Clint, Clint Moore's on a mission. So he's, he's curating almost everything Clint puts out. I like, all right. About easily 80%, which is, which is pretty, pretty high batting average. And there's other people who, whose taste I respect and so forth. I listen to them and all that. Um, now, do I have enough time to do deep dives on all these different acts? No, I don't. Um, but I, I, I try to mix, I try to mix, all right, so let me give you an example. Chris Cornell, right? Always liked, liked what he did uh, with, with his fans and so forth, but I didn't know, didn't know anything about his, 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 his solo stuff. So the uh, guitar player I play with, his son is a very talented musician, uh, recommends Euphoria Morning. Um, you know, Unbelievable you're, record, Gene. I mean, like, it's Preaching to the end of the world. Is that not one of the greatest songs ever? It's an astonishing record, okay? That from, from songwriting, maybe the greatest rock and roll voice ever, okay? I, and I'm a huge McCartney, Lennon fan, like, whatever, but it's just like, I'm just, like, I mean, I'm just stunning, stunning, and incredibly innovative songwriting, and, the, and the, whoever the mix engineer was, oh, my God, you know, just like, all the subtleties, all, all the little pans and tricks, like, I mean, just like A1 uh, thing. Not, what was that released in '99? So I like, never fucking heard of it. Okay, I'm discovering it like in in, in 2010 or 2020. Well, you know what? You yeah. know what's so cool about that record? Because first off, Soundgarden, he had such a, a great influence in that band. But you have Kim Thale, who's such a unique guitarist. So when Chris Cornell did his solo stuff at the time, a lot of people that loved you know like Bad Motorfinger was like, "This is pussy music." But for me, as a singer songwriter, he wrote. Such cool chord progressions and Euphoria Morning is pretty much for for me like the quintessential singer songwriter like cool chords like steal everything from this record ever and then just incorporate it into anything and it'll sound awesome because Chris Cornell as much as he had that unbelievable voice he understood harmony in such a great way to accentuate his voice with his incredible phrasing on the guitar and a lot of people don't realize that and that record made me like sit down and realize that yeah. well said Corey's like <laughs> good over it's the done <laughs> No, it's great that we can kind of have, uh, you know, two sides of the coin as far as your experience goes, you know, coming from that musical background. It's really interesting. Uh, one thing that you were, you were talking about earlier, we, we were kind of talking about breaking through in music um, in the business world. Uh, you know, do you notice any, I, I guess, and just to give a little backstory, we talked to a lot of musicians that have, have kind of made it to the top echelon of being in music. And, and one of the things they always talk about is, you know, the, the mentality, the, the background, the mindset that they see that got them there. And I'm wondering if there's parallels in the business world that you see, you know, when you were up at, you know, at the presidential, the president level, looking down, uh, employees, managers that were able to rise in the ranks, was there qualities among them that really stood out, uh, 
that you can kind of pinpoint? I would say that, you know, intelligence and work ethic were like, you had to, that, that, those were starters. You know, if you didn't have those, there's no chance. Uh, but the people I think who really, um, on, in general, accelerate, you know, did, did really well with the collaborators. Um, because especially if you're in a, a organization of any size, without collaboration, I mean, collaboration is the, you know, the, the lubricant. You know, it's how, I mean, you know, Benny, when you play in a great band, you know, that you've got collaboration going on, you know, um, and uh, so that, that's, uh, that's so important. And uh, it doesn't mean there isn't arguments, you know, occasionally even the knockdown, drag down, but it doesn't become personal. It doesn't, it doesn't last more than a, a night, maybe a week. Um, uh, and and uh, I mean, frankly, sometimes if people have too strong opinions, sometimes it, it, it does, there is heat until you reconcile it, but it never becomes personal. And, uh, and people are coming from a position of caring, giving a shit, right? And uh, so anyways, um, I, I would put collaboration at the top. You know, it's just like uh, just be, people who just kind of learn, you know, I'm not always right, you know, and uh, he's not always right, but we got to listen to each other and whatever. So I think I think that I put that as, as number one. Right. And got to be smart. Got to have the work ethic. Those are those are, you know, table stakes. Don't even get in the, in the room without that. I feel like that's like a, like the typical definition yeah. of like a symposium, you know what I mean? Like these with all these old philosophers, because that's kind of what I love about like working with Siobhan and Corey, because they're like diametrically opposed to my thought process. So I'll listen to something and be like, Corey, isn't this awesome? And he's like, how do you not hear how terrible this is? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I swear to God, like, there's you miss a note by a half step like 16 times. Maybe it was 18 times. Did you play that a second? A lot of Te- times during teamwork. the song. <laughs> yeah, so like it's one of those things where it's like, you know, again, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was famous for it because he surrounded himself with people that didn't agree with him. But it's still at the end of the day, he had to say so. So you do you feel like that's how you got a lot of your innovative ideas was surrounding yourself with people that didn't necessarily kiss your ass all the time? Yeah, not, not don't react well to ass kissers. Um, if if you ever watch uh, Leave it to Beaver? Remember yep. Eddie Haskell? Mm-hmm. Hey, Mrs. Cleaver, that's a wonderful dress you're wearing today. Just that was kind of cool. It's like I mean, nobody that's listening to this that's alive knows that reference. <laughs> but like, hey, that's cool. Hey, be we get the point. Be My favorite Beatles songs. I want to hold your hand. It's fine. <laughs> I just have a favorite Beatles song. I don't get that. I'm joking. I'm saying that because it's so old. Like, dude, first off, those first records are so like they're just a different band, man. Yeah, yeah. It was like such a short period of time. So like technically a year was like a lifetime for every other band in existence. But we can talk about that at another time. Wrote the song, you know, they wrote the song on a piano in, uh, in uh, Jimmy Asher's family home in the basement. Wow. I just thought I'd bring that up. That's kind of a cool little factoid. I don't think of that song as a piano song. Ah, uh, you know, I there's I just love the thing that's so cool about the Beatles for me is just it's just you know, I, I first off didn't respect them when I was younger. I'm like, why are the, the drums coming out of my left ear? This is making me nauseous. And then like when they release all the records in mono, I was like, wait a minute. Why would you listen to this in mono? Like I didn't understand, but I just 
they did so many things for the first time that can't be done again. And it's not to say that, that there aren't people breaking certain records and there aren't things that you can't push, but like the first that they had in such a short period of time, like it's just so serendipitous. And they set the standard for the music industry, period. And like there's like the Beatles before and after. And that's kind of like, you know, then you get your Van Halen, your Hendrix, and all, but it, it's really the Beatles. And anyone that says otherwise just doesn't have ears. I'll give you my three-minute spiel. Um, so there's a, uh, first of all, Mark Lewison is the penultimate Beatles biographer, right? And he's working on a tril- trilogy right now. He released the first one called Tuning In three, four years ago, and 800-page thing. And, and, you know, me and all my Beatle buddies, we devoured it. And uh, so you read Wait that. Wait a minute. Do you think that, that Lennon killed Stu <laughs> Sutcliffe? No. Back away uh, from the mic, Ben. No, <laughs> you don't need to be on top of it. <laughs> Sorry, I, I want to know if he thought that he Stu Sutcliffe was was. He can hear you. All right, so 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 the book covers uh, birth through December 1962. All right, uh, and December 62 is they've just uh, finished recording "Please Please Me," which is which is going to be their first number one released in '63, which starts Beatlemania in the UK. And the rest is history, right? So this book is it's meeting in school, it's playing 18 months in Hamburg, Germany, the Cavern Club, all the stuff there. The Beatles had come back from uh, from Hamburg. Uh, they were doing the Cavern Club, some gigs and all that, and just shit wasn't happening, right? And they were this close to breaking up, all right? And they had they had played on a record for an artist named Tony Tony Sheridan. They just were the backing band of a song called My Body. My Body Lights Over the Ocean, blah blah blah. It's a stupid uh, you know, pop version of My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean. So anyways, Brian Epstein, Beatles manager, but at the time uh, running a record store uh, in Liverpool, uh, some, some people come in and start asking for this record. So long story short, he finds out the Beatles are the backing on this. He goes to see them at the Cavern, and he's astonished at how good the band is and how charismatic the performers are. And he, he makes a proposal to be their manager. They're this close to breaking up. Um, they're starting to line up factory gigs and stuff like that. And uh, Brian Epstein uh, uh, offers to be their manager. They figure, out, well, you know, what do we get to lose? We're about to break up anyways. Uh, and, and and Brian like just starts figuring it out. Just literally has never been a manager. No idea. He's just so unbelievably jazzed about the Beatles. And he calls uh, EMI Studios and gets gets them in uh, with George Martin. And you know, uh, which George didn't like him at first. You know, he didn't think the material was very good. Um, had had uh, another drummer take Ringo's place for the first songs they recorded. Anyways, all this stuff happens, and uh, they worked it out, obviously. And uh, so, so we Brian, can work it out. Brian, Brian Epstein saves the band from breaking up, gets them into EMI, meets George Martin, who is through most of what the Beatles recorded. You know, they call him the fifth Beatles, but, you know, arguably the first Beatle. When you look at the impact he had, on, it's, it's certainly for the later era, where how much he had to do with the arrangements from the time they went off the road till the time they broke up, and how much it had to do with uh, George's arrangements and so forth. So, so, so then you have these incredibly talented guys who now talk about a resource-rich environment. They've got Jeff Emmerich at the console, and they've got George as producer. They're in EMI, the best studio in the UK, and so you take these kids who, you know, who, they, they were really good live. They were real rockers, real rockers, right? You hear, you hear the Beatles, you know, on stage, you know, performing the terrible recordings and, and Shea Stadium going through these, you know, horrible pieces and all that, that all the recordings survive. You just get past the shitty audio. You hear an incredibly great live band. 
And so they were ready to, to, uh, to blossom, but who knew they'd become such prolific songwriters and change the culture. And, and, and I'm sitting here right now, you're talking to me because, because of them and millions of other musicians were made. They created our, the modern music industry. Um, there was no guitar center for the Beatles, okay? There was organ center, um, and organ center sold organs, and uh, Vox was one of the brands of organs they sold. And when the Beatles hit, the folks from Vox told Wayne Mitchell, you can start carrying our amplifiers, and I guess they had guitars too and all that. He goes, no fucking way. I'm not putting that in my organ store. They said, well, if you don't put the stuff in a store, we're going to take away the line and give it to somebody else. So we opened a guitar center down the street from Oregon Center. And so, so, so the Beatles are why I'm here. The Beatles are why GC exists. There's Beatles, are like Ludwig says, they ran the factory on three shifts for years trying to keep up with demand, right? They completely changed everything. And, uh, and it wasn't just the, the momentary euphoria. So on so forth. Benny, the Beatles have influenced so many great musicians. And when I heard Nuno saying I grew up and we knew all the Beatles shit. Christmas, instead of saying Christmas carols, we're singing Beatles songs. I go, well, that's what my family's been doing for decades, right? And it's just, uh, it's deeply, deeply in the DNA of the industry. And, and, and the industry has evolved, obviously. There's so many different genres now and electronic music came along and, you know, this uh, rap came along, you know, hip hop and, and so many different mashups of that and so forth. Um, but uh, they, yeah, they, they are the birth of the, of the modern music industry. Wow. Wow. That's what an incredible way to end uh, the episode. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, exactly. That, that, that brings us to the end of uh, part one here with Gene Jolly. Thank you for taking the time to hang with us. Uh, I hope I hope you've made a little dent in that wine uh, for part two. Really? <laughs> it's happy slumbers. It's, 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 it's the end. Happy slumbers, right? You're going to get me bored. I'll drink more of this, but it's interesting so far. Thank you. Check out 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you, Gene uh, Jolly. Yeah, Gene. Any, anything uh, you know? You know, you're enjoying retirement. I assume anything you want to promote or tell people about, or just keep on rolling. Um, yeah, one thing I want to promote is um, oh, this has just been a tough time. Uh, the pandemic's been bad enough, but this emerging civil war is just really, you know, stop it. You know, and uh, uh, people, you know, people. Make an effort to keep communicating with people on the other side of the political spectrum, uh, because ultimately, you know, in the long term, they're still your friends and family. And uh, uh, and this is hard. This is hard because there's some pe people are like into some crazy shit that I don't want to fucking hear about. And but they feel you know same, same about me. And uh, yeah, so that's the one thing. Is just like you know, uh, man, you know, when I, I got in the music industry, it was all about peace, love, and understanding. It was uh, and what's so funny about that, right? And and, and John Lennon. You know, sang 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 about it with uh, with Yoko, and you know, uh, did she I, actually sing though? Do you call that singing? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I call this. He curb stomped that. There you go. <laughs> no, that's, no, it's a great that's, message yeah, though. A great Absolutely, one hundred percent. That's my message. Beautiful. All right. Well, we will uh, we'll catch up with you. <laughs> wait. So wait. Peace, what you're saying is divi divided we fall and together we stand? Or is it together we stand, divided we fall? From Roger Waters, like one of the most nihilistic human beings on the planet. But I digress. My founding father said, we must hang together or surely we'll, we will hang separately. Indeed. Ooh. Talking about, talking about 
the colonists fighting the British, all right? Hang together, we're gonna hang separately. And on that note, you've been 2020. (laughs) Thank you as always for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com, like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number seven with Angel Vivaldi. Check it out. Our evolution as musicians happened behind closed doors. Okay, there was no need to post a video and this and this and this and this and this. Yeah. Whereas kids these days, that's what you do. So what happens is we're literally witnessing the growth. So like a lot of like the younger guitarists, like in like Polyphia and Chan and things like that, I think are obviously evidently massively influential. But even more so, I'm really interested to see what happens when their music, when they're making music in their 40s. I want to see what they do. I want to see how they wind up evolving because. You know, my generation, our generation, evolved quite differently. So when I when I came out of the gate, you know, with my first couple records, it was kind of like I was already seasoned because I put in all my time, but you know, like this, you know, yeah. by myself. Mm-hmm. Sure. And you can cultivate what your sound is by yourself and not feel the pressure to do X, Y, and Z because it's trendy. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.